Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Well, friends, let's take our Bibles then and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, You'll see that printed, uh, page 5. It's page 259 in the church Bibles, page 259 in your black Bibles uh, that you should find near you. I'm going to read uh, the first 17 verses of chapter 7. Let's then hear God's word together. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Amen. Let's pause and pray together.
Loving Heavenly Father, this very day we are here because we are hungry. Hungry for you. Hungry for what you give and hungry for what you say. And so in your presence this morning, we ask you to feed us. To give to us what we do not have. And in your mercy to make us what we are not. And so hear us, we pray, in Christ's precious name. Amen. Friends, I want to let you in this morning. I want to let you in to the pastor's study. And I want to let you in this morning to the moments where I sit from time to time with an engaged couple, usually a young couple, an engaged couple embarking on marriage preparation with me. And I want to tell you about an emotion that I feel more and more the older I get as I sit with them. So imagine this young couple, if you can, in front of me, please. They're sitting there always slightly embarrassed to be there with the old boy in the corner. They are intoxicated with each other, naturally. And here's the new emotion that I feel as I speak to them. I tremble. I tremble. Maybe, maybe that's not actually an emotion. That's just what I'm doing. I, I share their joy, of course. I usually know both, both these young folks well. And I delight in what they're doing. I'm delighted for them. And I tremble for them. A couple of months later, when those two young kids stand in front of me in a church to get married to each other, I now understand much better than I did when I was them getting married. And many of you in this room, you understand it even better than I now do. We understand what it is that they are doing. They are looking each other in the eye and they are promising to be there for each other in a future that they do not know and cannot control. In, in the space of a couple of moments in a church service, usually, two young people make an appointment with each other in the future, a future that they do not know. They are making a promise to each other. That is, that is why I tremble. A promise. A promise. Tell me, friends, today, Tell me if there is anything more precious in all the world, anything more powerful, anything more fragile than a word of promise. I wonder if you've ever noticed this. Wedding services, look, look for this, the next wedding that you go to. Wedding services are not declarations of present love, are they? We, we, we never gather to watch a couple tell each other how much they love each other. Have you ever noticed that? In a wedding, at no point do the couple tell each other they love each other. It's obvious they love each other, isn't it? We can all tell that they love each other. No, the reason we've gathered is because they are promising to each other future love. Not present love, future love. Marriage is a promise of who I will be for you tomorrow. When the good times and the bad times come, I will love you. When you are healthy and when your body is broken, I will love you. 
When we are in the black at the end of each month, and when there is too much month left at the end of the money, I will love you. Really? Really? That's why I tremble. Why do we do it? Why do we promise to be there for someone when we do not know the future? When we cannot control the future? Oh, friends, a promise. There's your P word, mums and dads. Not hard. You probably guessed it before the children left. A promise is the most spectacular, most wonderful, most stupendous, stupendous word that will ever come out of your mouth. I will do this for you tomorrow. In the tomorrow I cannot see. The greatest thing in the world is a promise made and a promise kept. And the greatest promise in the world is a divine promise. God's promise. Not my promise or your promise. Did you hear God's promise this morning? Did you hear this morning, friends, verses 12 and 13 in our reading, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Did you hear God promise Christmas to you and me in your passage? Verse 12. When your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers... I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You know, I wonder if you know that sometimes the way that we look at the Bible is not the way the Bible looks at itself, if I can put it like that. So if you were to pick up your Bible at home, probably not your church Bible, but your, your Bible like this that you have, I'm guessing that where the creases are in your Bible tells us how we look at your Bible, how you look at your Bible. Tells us the bits that you turn to the most often, doesn't it? Probably most of our Bibles are creased somewhere around the Psalms, I'm guessing. Maybe Isaiah 53, maybe Romans 8. The way that the Bible seems to speak to me most directly is often our most well-thumbed pages in our Bibles, isn't it? But if I can put it like this, the Bible's own most creased spine places are probably different. See, the Bible tends to view the way that it speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ as the high points of the Bible. The places where Jesus is promised are the bits of the Bible that the Bible is always coming back to and, and pointing to. In other words, it's what the Bible says about him that matters most, not what it says about me. The, the Bible, if I can change the image, has these pegs along a washing line. The, the story of, of what God is doing in the world from Genesis to Revelation, there are these pegs hanging along the washing line where all the decisive things happen. Genesis chapter 3 Remember God, what God said to Eve in the garden? I will put enmity between you and your offspring and between the serpent and the serpent's offspring. And from then on, we're, we're wondering, who, who is going to crush the serpent's head? Who's, whose heel is the serpent going to strike? Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, chapter 17, to Abraham. 
I will bless you, Abraham. I will make your name great. I will give you a worldwide family. And we read the Bible thinking, how is that going to happen? How is this one man going to lead to all the nations of the earth coming to know and love the same God that we do? And friends, 2 Samuel chapter 7 is right up there as one of those texts. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is a watershed moment in the Bible. It, it is a covenant moment. It is God promising something to David that is going to mean from this point on in the Bible story, absolutely everything will depend on God keeping his promise. Everything. The entire history of the world and the future of our planet depends on 2 Samuel chapter 7. Do you remember what the angel Gabriel says to Mary in Mary's astonishment? Luke's Gospel chapter 1, do you remember? You will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. I wonder if you knew that about Christmas. That as Christmas begins, as the angel comes to Mary, isn't it beautiful that to explain Christmas to Mary, the angel Gabriel does it in a one-to-one Bible study on Second Samuel chapter 7. Do you remember that promise to David Mary? Do you remember what you've grown up hearing about and learning about? Well, there it is in your womb, Mary, a son. Friends, I want this Christmas, I want this Christmas to be the one you always remember. The really, really special Christmas. Do you have Christmases like that? You know, you look back and some are average, but that, that, that one in particular really stood out, standout Christmases. This is going to be one of them for you, okay? Because this is going to be the Christmas that you say to everybody for the rest of your life, I came to see that Second Samuel chapter 7 is one of the greatest, most glorious passages in all the Bible. Okay, that's what I want it to be for you. The most special Christmas you've ever had. Second Samuel chapter 7. I want to invite you to take three Sunday mornings with me to look at the theology of Christmas and to see that at the heart of that is promise. Promise. We're going to look at the content of the promise itself next week, 11th of December, the content of the promise. promise. Then 18th of December, we're going to look at David's response to the promise. But here's what, here's what I want to show us this morning. The God of the promise the God of the promise. Look at his word and look at his grace. Those are the two points this morning. Look at his word and look at his grace. And as we look at both of those things, his word and his grace, so in doing that, I want to give you the title of the sermon. You have it printed on page six. Brothers and sisters, this morning, your significance, my significance is in our servitude to this God. You you want your life to count for something, don't you? You want your life to mean something. You, you, You want to have the best Christmas ever. You want to know God better than ever. You want to know Him more. 
Second Samuel 7 says, learn what it means to serve him. Learn what it means to serve him. Friends, just look how this servant idea is the key to the way the story works. Okay? Look at verse 1. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the servant idea is the key to the way this story works. The king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. See, when you get to verse 1 of chapter 7, we're meant to see that we've reached a high point. That the ark of God, which is the symbol of God's presence, is in the city of David, and David now has rest from all his surrounding enemies. It's a high point, it's a, a peace point in the Bible story. And when things are at rest and most peaceful, what do powerful people do? What do kings do? They plan. Dale Ralph Davis, the commentator, he says, when we get to verse 1, in our mind's eye, we're meant to imagine David and Nathan sporting mugs of decaffeinated coffee, enjoying an after-dinner conversation on the roof of David's house. They're, they're looking at the lie of the land. The military is stable. Everything is in order. The soldiers are home. But something is bothering David. Can you see what it is? Just notice how the text does this. Notice how the story works here. Verse 2. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Can't you just hear his mind working? You can almost hear the cogs turning, can't you? I'm living in Versace and Prada and Chelsea and Westminster. But God is living in canvas. See, see the log logic? It's, it's right, isn't it? it? He makes sense. I'm the king in a house of cedar. I've got the best. But the ark of God, the God of highest heaven, lives in a tent. And the unstated words are, that cannot be right. Right? That cannot be right. Brothers and sisters, what do you think? I mean, David has a point, doesn't he? Surely he has a point. Think about it. What, what do you think God deserves? Where do you think God should live? Let, let me ask you this this morning. What, what do you think he's worth? What do you want to give him? And certainly Nathan the prophet seems to agree with David, doesn't he? Verse 3, the king says this to Nathan. Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. Yeah, it sounds good, David. And so friends, in all our thinking about the house of God. Look with me at the Word of God. Or better, listen now to the Word of God. Verse 4. But that same night, listen, David, Nathan, before you act too quickly, that same night, the Word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant, David. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? 
You notice what's happening? He, he spotted it, hasn't he? The Lord has spotted it. Of course he spotted it. You haven't said it, David, but I know you're thinking of building me a house. Now just notice what does the Lord call David? My servant. My servant. Look back at verses 1 and 2 and 3 again. Three times David is called the king. You see that? The king, the king, the king. Here is the great man of God. He's bringing rest to the people. David the king. And here is the great prophet of God, Nathan. And kings and prophets are people of action, aren't they? They're people of power and wealth, people who can do things and make things happen. And just as they are hatching their entirely sensible, upright, godly plan, the word of the Lord comes to Nathan to override the word of David to Nathan. And the word of the Lord says, David, you serve me, not decide for me. You serve me. You do not decide for me. You might be the king, David. Yes, great. I I put you there. I made you the king. But you never dictate the terms of my residence. That was never in the small print. Oh, friends, the word of the Lord is everything. It is everything. Isn't it amazing? I think one of the most lovely things in this chapter is just how gentle, how tender God is with both David and Nathan. Do you notice that? That there is no real rebuke here. There's no punishment for them. There is no humiliation for them. But they have got this wrong. So badly wrong. The prophet of God is not uniquely on the side of God unless he is speaking the word of God. The king of God's people is not uniquely on the side of God unless he is serving the word of God. Neither king nor prophet gets to go it alone and decide what God must be like or what, where he lives must be like. No one gets to decide what God himself must be like, what his preferences might be in any given area. We do not get to play God or decide for God or dictate to God. We don't design his house. We don't design his world. We don't design how his church should be. We don't design how we should worship him. No, we are his servants. We serve him, not decide for him. We listen to him, not speak for him. If you look at verse 2 again, isn't it true, friends? Don't, don't, don't you see the subtle seeds in verse 2? Can't you see the subtle seeds of the kind of attitude that says, to me, God is dot, dot, dot. You ever heard that? Ever heard somebody say that or said that yourself? To me, God is all love, never anger. Look at the starting, starting point there in verse 1. See, see now, verse 2, sorry. See now, I dwell in a house of cedar. So I am in this, so how can God be in that? Friends, whenever we wonder what God is like or must be like or must do by starting with what I am like, the results are nearly always going to be unreliable. It's how we work, isn't it? I like to think of God as dot, dot, dot. 
That, that's it, isn't it? That's what's happening here. I like to think of God as the kind of God that lives in a cedar house. I mean, it makes sense, right? Except it's wrong. It's wrong. Look at verse 5. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel? Did I ever say, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Brothers and sisters, what we need to do For God is what he has asked us to do for him. Nothing more and nothing less. Can we we take this in? Even when it doesn't make sense to us. Even when it doesn't make sense. Ah, there is the test of true humility, isn't it? There is the test of real biblical faith. Not just saying, I believe the Bible. But... I believe the Bible even when it says what I did not expect it to say. I believe the Bible even when it is in plain contradiction of my own starting point. I believe God's Word. I mean, is it not completely logical? If a human king is in a cedar house, then surely the divine king should also be at least in a cedar house, probably a gold house. It's logical, isn't it? No, David, a tent, please. I want a tent. That will do. It's not logical. I know that some of you in this room, I, I know that some of us here this morning are finding this out, aren't we? And it, it's, make it, it's making our heads hurt a bit. We're, we're, we're new to the Bible. We're new to the Christian faith. And, and we keep rubbing up against the fact that Christian people do not believe this book because it always confirms what we always thought to be true about the world. That's not why we believe it. No, this book so often confounds what we thought to be true. Virgins do not conceive babies, do they? Right? Virgins don't conceive. Dead bodies do not come back to life, do they? Wombs and tombs. We know how life gets there in one of them and we know that life doesn't ever come out of the other one. And yet, it does. So why do we do it? Why why this morning do we believe the seemingly impossible and the, the almost incredible? I think it's because of this, friends. We believe it because what we find here in the Bible, is not just almost impossible, not just incredible, it is also indescribably beautiful, isn't it? Indescribably beautiful. Partly why we believe the Word of God is because of the grace of God. We believe the Word of God about God because in telling us who God is and what He is like, it makes us want to fall on our knees and confess and adore Him. For we have never, ever seen anyone like this, have we? No one does this, friends. No one does this. 
Here's our second point. First point, always listen for the Word of God. Listen for the Word of God. Not a church leader's dream, not a preacher's passion, unless it contains God's Word. But number two, look at the grace of God. Look at the grace of God. I want you to, I want you to feel the grace of God this morning, friends. We're coming to the Lord's table. The Lord's table. What is he like? Dear God, I live in an amazing house, but you're amazing, God. I love you. So I'm thinking of building you an amazing house. Dear David, noted. Now take a seat. Verse 5. Would you build me a house? David, is, is that what you want to do? Look, David, the Lord is saying, we're just getting started here, you and me. We're just beginning to walk together as friends. David, you don't really know me, do you? Here's the thing, David. Here's how it works. Look at verse 11. I want you to look at verse 11 in front of you. And before I say anything about it, I want your eyes just to take in. There are three sentences in verse 11. And I want you to find the last sentence in that verse. And take it in. I will make you a house, David. You want to build me a house, David? No, I'm going to make you a house. Unlike all the other pagan deities of the ancient world, this God, the God of the Bible, refuses the offering of his king and instead promises an offering to his king. Isn't that amazing? He turns down David's offer and says, I'm going to raise it one. I'm going to go way beyond what you ever wanted to give to me. You want to make a name for me, David? No, I am going to make a name for you. Isn't it true? We think I'm going to give God something, going to offer to him and and God will respond to me. God says, no, I'm going to bless you and I'm, I'm going to give to you and you will just respond with thanks. That's all you need to do. I read somebody this week who put it like this. David had in mind to erect a modest building of wood and stone for God. But God is promising to establish a kingdom that will stand firm against the crashing waves of history and the rise and fall of world empires. Isn't it so beautiful? David, you want to throw up a few walls that will last a generation. I am going to establish your house forever. Your kingdom forever. Brothers and sisters, I hope you know that this Christmas. I want you to know that that the Bible is not about what you can do for God. It's not about what you can do for Him. It is all about what God has done for you. Your significance this morning is not in your stratagems and your action and your, your plans and your achievements. Your significance, God says, is simply in serving me. Simply serving me by doing what I ask of you. And what I ask of you is to receive from me. To receive from me. Before ever thinking of giving to me. Do you know why? Do you know why God is doing this for David? Because that's who he is. The God of grace. There's such a beauty in this. Look at verse 6 again. Do you see the point of this? 
you know why I live in a tent, David? Because the people live in tents. My people. David, they're on the move, so I'm on the move. I'm a God on the move. I'm a God on the go. I haven't settled yet in a house, David, because look at verse 7. In all the places where I have moved with all the people. If the people are moving, I am moving. What they are doing, I am doing. Do you see what God is saying about himself? Listen to Dale Ralph Davis. He is the God who travels with his people in all their topsy-turvy here and there journeys and wanderings. Do his people live in tents? Then so does he. Are they a pilgrim people on their way to the land of promise? Then so is he the pilgrim God sharing the rigors of the journey with them. Oh, it is astonishing. Years and years ago, I had a a friend at university, and I remember talking to this university friend. He was telling me about a long-distance journey that they took as a family, a long-haul flight, and he said that he and his sister were on this plane with their mum and dad, and he and his sister were at that just absolute nightmare age for a long-haul flight. Some of you know what that's like, or you've, you've witnessed people suffering through that kind of flight. Toddler age, running around, really long flight, whatever length it was, and he was describing the flight and what it was like for his poor mum. And I said to him, well, obviously your dad couldn't come. You know, what, what happened with your dad? And he said, oh, no, dad was on the plane as well, but he traveled in first class. <laughs> More wine, sir? Yes, thank you. Another glass. And at the back of the plane, mum tearing her hair out with two small children running around the back of the plane. It is so natural and so normal, isn't it, for human beings to want to elevate ourselves. First class sounds nice. That's how I'd travel. I want to ask you this morning, friends, if you have any category for God doing the opposite of what we do. That the God of heaven and earth, I often use this phrase, don't I, from, from a, a beautiful hymn. The God who is so infinite that, that he is a sun without a sphere. So great that he is a sea without a shore. That his knowledge is a bottomless ocean who, whose depths only he can plumb. This God does not choose first class but economy. Isn't it astonishing? He comes to his people where they are. Are they in a desert? So am I. Are they in a tent? So am I. Do they have flesh and blood? Then so will I. The word became flesh and tabernacled, tented among us. It's literally what it says. He dwelt among us. Are they in the hospital waiting room? Then so am I. Are they at the graveside weeping? Then so am I. Are they struggling with sin and shame and totally lost in the world? Then I will go and get them and be with them. Oh, brothers and sisters, wonder of wonders this morning. He did not simply dwell among us. Look at the signs on this table. He died among us. 
died for us, died for his people. No, 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 David, we say. Pastor David, I mean, not King David. No, 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 you say to me, you don't don't know me, you don't know what I've done. He can't want to be with me. Look what the Lord is teaching David, verse 8. Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, I chose you, David, because you were the greatest king I'd ever seen in all the world. Is that what verse 8 says? No, I, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went. I, I've the, I'm the one that has always done all the running, David. All the coming to you. There was nothing special about you, nothing great about you. You were the least among the sons of Jesse, and I chose you. And so we touch the heart of the promise, don't we? All the way through Second Samuel chapter 7, I will, the Lord says, I will, I will, I will do. The heart of the promise, friends, is this, I will provide. I will provide. You receive you take, I will give, you take, I will die, you eat, you drink, I will die, you live. In just a few moments, the, the shepherds of this particular flock, this Trinity family, the shepherds of this flock are going to move among us with bread and wine in our hands. And as we do it, we will ask no one for money. We will ask no one for your credit rating with God. We will hold out bread and wine to show you that this is what God gives. This is what He does. He gives and He gives and He gives and He gives and we receive. We we tremble, don't we, at humans making promises because we know what we're like. That's why I tremble. I know what I'm like. We don't tremble because it's wrong to make the promises. But do you know what God is like? He is like this. So come and eat and come and drink. Amen.